Once again, great to see you all. Uh, we have a big passage in front of us today, so let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you want to open up your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're, we're just going to read the whole thing. We're just going to dig into the whole thing this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 18. And this is what it says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our elder self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's go to the Lord again. God, we ask for your help in understanding this passage this morning, Lord. Would you illuminate our eyes, Lord? Would you open our minds and renew our minds through reflecting on, through marinating in your word this morning? God, we need your help in this. God, would you apply your word to our hearts? And would we see transformation happen as a result? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you, if you think for, for long enough, you can probably come to the conclusion that people tend to store things that are of great worth in really strange places. People tend to store things that are of great worth 
in really strange places. Maybe this resonates with you this morning. Maybe you're the, uh, the cash in the couch kind of person who likes to tuck valuable things away in the unlikeliest of places, in places that seem like they can be easily accessed. You, you hear these stories about people going to, uh, you know, they go to their local restore and they pick up a couch and they bring it home. And when they get home, they, they find that it's lumpy. And what they come to find out is that there's just rolls of dollar bills that are stuffed into this couch. I know you probably haven't had that experience, but these stories are out there. This happens to people. They put things that are of great worth, their own personal, even family treasures in, in the strangest uh, of places. It reminds me a little bit of uh, in the 90s, there's a movie called Heavyweights that you may be familiar with. Um, I don't condone the message of the movie, but in the movie, those who've gone to this camp, the, the greatest treasure for them at this camp is, is that they would have snacks available to them. They've been sent to this camp to lose weight. They're eating nothing but broccoli and healthy stuff. And what do they do? They, they stuff their snacks, this treasure, into the bedposts of the beds that they're called to sleep in. They put this treasure in the unlikeliest of places. And for myself, I have uh, ashamedly, I would say, uh, had a similar experience back in September of 2015. I, I found myself talking with this girl from Louisiana who was sitting over to my left, and we were moving towards engagement, moving towards marriage, all these exciting things. And so naturally, I made the wise decision of, of searching for an engagement ring online. For some reason, every major life decision I make is sight unseen. Uh, we've bought our car that way, we've bought our house that way, so many things. Uh, but I found myself shopping for a ring online, and, and the absurdity of it all like, started to rest on me one afternoon when I'm talking with Ashley, and we're FaceTiming, and I hear the doorbell ring, and I go, and there's a package there, and it's the ring that I've bought for her, and she's in the other room. And so I go back to her, and I give her some vague answer about what's just arrived at the door, and just the, kind of the absurdity of what was happening really rested on me in that moment. There's this tiny package that's just been bounced around all over the country that to, to me at that time was, was of inestimable worth financially. I had bled out financially to purchase this ring for Ashley. And it just, the absurdity of it landed on me. And it further landed on me as I, I went and I proposed and I had this great little case. But then all of a sudden I was confronted with the reality that the, the wedding band that was almost as nice as the wedding ring itself had no home. And so naturally I just found a five cent envelope and just threw it in there and tucked it away in my drawer. And I just, I thought about it often, you know, every once in a while, my mind would come back to this, just what, what am I doing here? This is probably the most valuable thing that I own right now. And it's tucked away in a five cent envelope, one of the most vulnerable places that I could possibly put it. Something that I'm gonna probably throw away in the trash if I'm not careful as I'm cleaning up. We tend to hide treasures in strange places. And we find in our passage today in 2 Corinthians 4, that God is about this same type of work. That there's this reality at play in our passage today of God putting treasure into strange places, putting treasure into vulnerable people. Paul is trying to communicate to his opponents, to the Corinthian church. He's continuing this argument. He wants to communicate to them something about how God works. He wants them to see that, that God puts the treasure and the glory of the gospel into weak and ordinary people just like himself. 
That's the accusation that's been levied against him so often that he's weak and ordinary. But he wants them to see that, that God displays his power and his glory through the ministry of weak and ordinary people. That's our, that's our big idea for this morning, that God displays his power and glory through the ministry of weak and ordinary people. And he, there's a purpose for that that's addressed in verse 7. And he, he does this so that he will receive the glory for any good that comes of his people's ministry. He will receive the glory. And so I, I want to attack this passage in a unique way this morning, kind of seeing verse 7 as our entry point into the passage, because it's going to help to orient us to the other statements that Paul makes. So we're going to kind of attack it from the inside out, because I want us to see how in verse 7, uh, we see really the climax or the, the summation even of Paul's arguments, the, this climax of his uh, argument of why his ministry is authentic, of why he can be trusted by the Corinthian believers. And what we'll see as, as we kind of work our way through this passage even is that Paul will continue he, because he's defending himself and his companion ministers, uses this language of we and this language of us, which helps us to see that in some ways, what he's saying is exclusive to him and his companion ministers. But I also want us to see, this is important, that there's a sense in which, a sense in which the principles that we can draw from Paul's argument are applicable to us today. If we are Christians, we are those who have been shown grace. We are under the new covenant. And therefore, we too have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. And so what Paul says about himself and, and the ministers that are serving alongside him still rings true for us today if we are believers. So to the passage, attacking it from the inside out. Verses one through five, Paul continues, he gives this defense of his ministry. And then in verse six, he moves into this poetic depiction of how God works in converting the hearts of men and women. He's describing for us the, the miracle of conversion in the Christian life. This miracle that he and each of these ministers to the church have experienced. It's a, it's a creative work of God in their hearts. And a creative work, as we see in verse 6, that is in line with the splendor and the majesty of the creation account in Genesis 1. He draws on this Old Testament language when he says, let light shine out of darkness. Comparing that to how God has shown the knowledge of himself into the hearts of people. And so we saw in chapter 3 that, that before this would happen, Paul and his other ministers they, they have walked in this way of darkness. They had this veil over their eyes. And yet Christ, here we see, has taken away that veil. We see that he has shown into their hearts that he's given them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And because this is the way that God has worked in their lives, because this is how he has brought salvation in their lives, in verse five, we see that they can't help then but turn around and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. They can't help but proclaim the source of their own salvation. Why, after all, would they want to obscure or cover over that reality by proclaiming themselves? They, they've received the treasure of the glory of God in the gospel, a treasure that, that in Matthew 13, we see is worth selling all that we have to gain, a treasure of inestimable worth and a treasure that verse seven helps us to see is placed in jars of clay. 
the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ placed in the most ordinary of things, weak human beings. This, this jars of clay reference, this is a metaphor that the Corinthian audience, they would have understood well in their day because clay jars were, were one of the most common household items that you would find. They were used to store oil, to store flour, to store so many other items around the house. And they were so common even that when one would break, there was really no bother at all in repairing it. They would just throw it away or they would make a new one. And so we see that these, these clay jars, they're ordinary, that they're fragile, that they're prone to break and they're prone to get thrown onto the trash heap. And this is what Paul seizes on as he describes himself and his companion ministers to the church, that they're just clay jars, that they're common, that they're fragile, that they're weak, and that they're ordinary. And yet, they are people in whom God has placed the treasure of the gospel, people in whom God has placed his glory. And ultimately, the point here is, is that they are people through whom God will receive glory, that they're people in whom this, this weakness and this ordinariness will be evidence, as it has been to the Corinthians, but God's power and his glory is going to be the most evident. And so he wants his opponents and those of the church in Corinth to see that, that God displays his power and his glory through the ministry of weak and ordinary people. It's, it's really the summary statement, and it's why I wanna harp on it so much, of Paul's entire defense of his apostolic ministry. It's, he's coming to this point of finally saying, of course I'm not impressive in appearance. Of course I'm not as eloquent as you would want me to be. Of course I've suffered greatly in my ministry to you. But look at how those realities shine a spotlight on the power in my ministry. Look, look at how they shine a spotlight on how the power of God is at work within and through me, a clay jar, someone who is fragile and ordinary. Look and see how there's power in my weakness, God working in me so that he will receive the glory. And so really this is the crux of, of gospel ministry is that God chooses to use weak, fragile, and unimpressive people so that he has brought glory. He works in the world in this way, and he alone receives the glory for it. And so understanding this idea, this concept laid out in verse 7, is so important to us understanding the true nature of gospel ministry that is laid out for us in the rest of the statements that Paul makes in chapter 4. It helps us see this theme of human weakness and God's power in the rest of the chapter and so that's what we'll spend our, the rest of our time looking at uh, in, in chapter four. And so look in verses one through six. First, we're gonna see along these lines that, that gospel ministry is by the mercy of God in verses one through six. Having been shown mercy, this, this it implicitly has the idea in it that to be shown mercy means that you have been inadequate in some way. Paul's weakness on display there and God's overcoming power as well on display. And it says there in verse one that, that he finds encouragement in this reality that he's been shown mercy. That, that in new covenant ministry, in his salvation, that these things have been given to him solely by the mercy of God. And we can think on Paul's radical conversion. If you think back to Acts chapter nine, we see that, that he's on the road to Damascus, on the way to persecute other Christians when God intervenes in his life 
when he shows up into his life and he shows mercy to him, a Pharisee who is persecuting Christians. It's this profound moment when, when he's transferred from darkness into light, from old covenant ministry into new covenant ministry. And it's a moment that is captured even in part, I think, in verse, in verse six of chapter four. This conversion experience that Paul has experienced solely by the mercy of God. He recognizes that he would have nothing if it were not for God's mercy. And this leads him in the rest of verses one through six, we see to go about ministry in a certain way. It's gonna dictate the, the method and the message of his ministry. As you'll remember back a few chapters ago, uh, Paul's opponents, they prized oratorical skill when it came to preaching. They prized appearances and they prized deceptive tactics that would sway their followers. But here, Paul, in, in verse two, he shows them, he says, I've lived openly before you, Corinthians. I've lived openly before you. I may have been unimpressive, but I have sought integrity in my ministry, sought to clearly and boldly proclaim the gospel. And this is a response to the fact that I've been shown mercy. And so they shouldn't question then his motives. They shouldn't question whether or not he cares for them. He has gone about things in a God-honoring way. And yet another accusation that he responds to here in verse three is that his ministry was ineffective. That, yeah, that's great, Paul. You've gone about things with integrity, but where's the fruit of your ministry? Why aren't more and more people coming to know Jesus or following him in righteousness? And in verse three, he addresses that and he says, uh, ultimately, the, the response to the gospel is not in my control. He says the response to the gospel is in God's control alone. For some, the veil that he referenced in chapter three continues to lie over their hearts, continues to keep them from seeing Christ for who he is. And this veil, this blindness to the glory of Christ, we see in verse four, is kept in place by Satan, who is referred to as the God of this world. Paul is saying, he's saying, I'm, I'm responsible for carrying out my ministry with integrity and conviction, but the Lord is the one who changes hearts. And because that's true, I'm just gonna continue proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. That's my work, you see in verse five. I'm gonna proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and I'm gonna serve others and I'm gonna leave the results up to the Lord. And I think that's such a helpful thing for us, verse five, because it can clear away at, at maybe the confusion that we ourselves have as those who have been saved by grace and who are now commissioned as ministers of the gospel. This is it. The whole of ministry is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and serving others. It's all summed up in those two simple ideas. And so because gospel ministry is by the mercy of God, Paul preaches Jesus Christ as Lord. Because gospel ministry is by the mercy of God, Paul entrusts the results of his ministry to God. Though he may be one who is unimpressive in speech, he simply has to preach the gospel and God will do the rest. And so we see that God works through weak messengers, Paul being one of them. And there's, there's a story that you can even look to of... Uh, Spurgeon's salvation, Charles Spurgeon, the pastor in, in, the, 18th, in the 1800s. And, and his salvation story is so unique because while he became sort of this high and lifted up preacher in the history of the church, the way that he came to salvation 
was under the ministry of a lay country preacher in a Methodist church in backwoods, England. He's walking to this church one day and he says the message that was given was not in any way impressive. It was a man standing up and simply reading the passage and essentially just repeating those things back to him. And yet through that, God used the ministry of that man who had given his life so that others would hear the gospel. He used that man to save him. And we see the fruit of that is this incredible ministry that goes on throughout the rest of the 1800s. An unimpressive, a weak messenger who God uses in his hands to bring fruit, to bring salvation, to bring life to others. We, we then see verses seven through 15, look there. We see in these verses that gospel ministry, it involves suffering for the sake of others. Gospel ministry involves suffering for the sake of others. He gives us a general list of what they have been through in verses eight through nine. It's, it's worth reading that he's, they've been afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. They have been through so much in their ministry to the Corinthians. You can look to 2 Corinthians 11 and verses 24 through 26 and see this short list even of what Paul himself has been through so that the gospel would get to the Corinthians, so that the Corinthians would be matured in their faith. They have been pressed, crushed, and yet encouragement still abounds for Paul. Each of those statements is balanced out with an encouragement that they still find that they're not crushed, yet they're afflicted, that they're not driven to despair, even though they may be perplexed. And so they find still encouragement in these trials. And you almost get this sense that it's as, it's as if Paul is saying, I'm not going anywhere, Corinthians. You might wanna get rid of me, and I might've been hurt even by your distrust of me, but I have this resolute confidence in God that he will use even what seems to be weak in my human suffering for your spiritual good. And, and he gets to that idea, idea even further with this language in verses 10 and 11, where, where he writes that he is carrying in his body the death of Jesus. And in 11, that he's being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He wants to, to capture this idea that the sufferings that he has endured so that they have, would walk in righteousness. They've been a sort of death to him. He doesn't want to diminish that. He's laid aside his rights for them. He has put aside his own comforts for their spiritual good. And this has not been easy. It's led to anguish in Paul and his minister companions. Anguish that has led to, to even at times despairing but, but Paul ultimately wants to draw out the point that, that he, he expected this, that to be a minister of the gospel is to submit oneself to suffering for the sake of others, to submit oneself to the, the death of your own rights, to the death of your own comfort, to the death of your own status. We've seen all of those things play out in Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. But in 10 and 11, we see that just as in Christ's death, the death of the minister of the gospel produces life in others. Let me say that again. Just as in Christ's death, this death of the minister of the gospel produces life in others. That though in, in Christ's death, there is seemingly weakness 
on display. It is really the occasion that God uses to display his power and glory by bringing salvation to the world. And therefore, in Paul's own internal death in his ministry to the Corinthians, something similar is happening. God is bringing life to the Corinthians. He's bringing life out of this death that Paul is having to suffer. And verse 12 captures that so succinctly when it says that death is at work in us, but life in you. This meaningful participation in the death of Christ that will actually lead to the fruit of righteousness in those who are being ministered to, which is really something like we see in the life of so many missionaries if we look throughout church history. We can think of someone like Adoniram Judson, this missionary to India and Burma in the 1800s who who's, you know, sells all that he has, hops on a ship, learns the language of the people, uproots his life, uproots his family, and he finds himself in a country that, that has hard soil. The people are not ready to receive the gospel. And so he toils and he strives so that these people will be brought to a knowledge of God. And yet time and again, he faces suffering and obstacle. He's at one point imprisoned as Burma goes to war with Britain and he's tortured and he's beaten in this imprisonment. We see that when he gets out shortly after that, his wife dies and he's forced to continue on in his ministry without this companion by his side. He's facing roadblock after roadblock, enduring suffering after suffering, and yet he counted that cost as worth it. He counted suffering for the sake of others so that they might know the gospel as worth it. What an instructive example for us that this work is worth it, that we can trust that God will work through the weakness even of our own suffering so that other people will come to a knowledge of the gospel. And we see too, as we read on in verse 14, that the outcome of this death of the minister, this suffering for the sake of others, is that just as, as he is participating in the death of Christ, he is also having this opportunity to one day participate in the resurrection of Christ. He draws this out. He says, there's this reality that he will follow Christ in his resurrection, that this death that he experiences internally even now will not be the last word for him, but that there's a coming resurrection that Paul has talked about. If you look back in 1 Corinthians 15, where just as Jesus has raised from the dead, so he too will follow him and be raised to life. Jesus being the first fruits of those who are to follow so yes, there's a dying that takes place when we choose to suffer for the sake of others. But there will come a time when we will be raised with Christ and you will no longer be given over to that death and that suffering for the sake of others. And, and there's a, a note too in 14 uh, that I wanna draw out, which is that Paul, he, he envisions the Corinthians there with him in this resurrection. That this laboring that he is doing on their behalf he envisions that God will in fact sustain many of them who he sees even now are saints, though they may be wayward in their following of the Lord. It's so hopeful that, that even those who we minister to, who we feel like will never respond, who will never pursue the path of righteousness if they're already believers, we can have confidence that God will at many times bring those people along and we will see them uh, with Christ in glory. And it's this picture of it's purposeful suffering for the sake of others. And so it, it, 
it leads us to this question that we ask ourselves, which is, are, are we willing to submit to this? Are we willing to submit to this? Are we willing to, to patiently endure maybe years of rebellion in our children in hopes that Christ will work through your presence in their life to save them? Are we, are we willing to engage in the messiness of community and walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrestling with sin that seems to never go away? Are we willing to sit there in the trenches with them and remind them what is true about their identity in the gospel so that they can throw off this sin that weighs them down? Are we ready to be inconvenienced for the sake of the good news of Jesus going forth to our neighbors and our communities? It's a hard question to ask. It's a searching question that we have to ask ourselves and we probably find ourselves feeling inadequate for these things. We find ourselves feeling inadequate for that task and we would be right in thinking that. Because as we've seen in chapter three, Paul clearly describes, he says, yes, there is inadequacy, but sufficiency comes from God. That though you may feel inadequate for suff in suffering for the sake of others, God can sustain you in your weakness, can sustain you in that, can work even through the weakness of your own frame. So we see that, that gospel ministry is by the mercy of God, that it involves suffering for the sake of others. And this last point that I wanna draw out is that gospel ministry involves looking to the eternal reward that awaits. Gospel ministry involves looking to the eternal reward that awaits. We see this in 16 through 18. We see that, that Paul doesn't have a naive optimism as if he doesn't realize the toil of these hardships in ministry. They're taking such a toil on him that he states here that his outer self is wasting away. It's a burden to him, but he, he takes heart knowing that while that may be the case, he is experiencing an inward renewal that is of God. We can consider the renewal of the mind that we see talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse two, that Paul himself writes about. That though there he gives his body and ministry as a living sacrifice to the Lord, the reward he receives in the present is this spiritual renewal, this encouragement that finds its source in God himself. And we see here too that as he goes on in this argument, the reward, he, the reward he's gonna receive in the future is this eternal weight of glory that it says is beyond all comparison. He has this eternal perspective that helps to reframe even the afflictions that he's facing in the present. He, he's able to call them light and momentary afflictions. Light and momentary. If we know anything about Paul's biography, as I mentioned earlier in 2 Corinthians 11, it's that we would not likely call his, his sufferings and his afflictions light and momentary. And yet he can call them that because he finds encouragement in the eternal word, reward that is coming. This, this weight of glory, which is the, the fruit of his labors to observe and enjoy in eternity. That, that he is gonna see many saints whom he has labored for in his own ministry and glorified bodies in heaven. And that in that place, there's gonna be this, this weight of glory, this sense that your ministry has been worth it, Paul, that God has worked through you the weakness of your own frame and brought glory to himself in so doing. And so it's a message to take heart. He says there that he doesn't lose heart because of these things. 
Take heart because the afflictions faced in gospel ministry in this life, they're no doubt heavy, but, but it's true that their weight cannot be compared to the weight of glory that is yet to be revealed. Toil and suffering and affliction now, but a day coming when there's gonna be a resting and, and a relishing all that God has worked through you to produce, through you as an ordinary and a, and a fragile vessel. And so those in gospel ministry, those who are, have been shown grace, who call themselves Christians and who've been entrusted with the message of the gospel, they need this heavenly, eternal perspective. We need this to keep us from discouragement as we go about our lives, as we go about being, having been sent into the lives of others, as we go about trying to hold the good news of Jesus out to our neighbors and to our family members who don't yet know Christ. We need encouragement in those efforts because we often have to bear up under suffering and affliction and difficulty as we engage in that ministry. And so putting, putting a bow on everything, the, the simple takeaway that we can have from this entire chapter, which there's so much more to, to dig into that we haven't had time for, is that God displays his power and his glory through the ministry of weak and ordinary people. This is God's design for gospel ministry in this life. And so if you this morning feel weak, if you feel inadequate for this task, you are in good company because Paul himself felt this way, the one who has written half of the New Testament. We can trust that, that God will work through our weakness, will work through our insufficiency, through our ordinariness, so that he will receive the glory from many lives being changed by the gospel. Take heart in this reality today. Let's pray. God, we do thank you, Lord, that this is the way that you have designed gospel ministry in this life, Lord. God, that you are not looking for those with impressive giftings, for those who have eloquent speech, but God, you are looking for those who are faithful. God, those who recognize the mercy of God God, those who, who recognize their station, Lord, that they are unworthy of being entrusted with gospel ministry, Lord, and yet they see their sufficiency as being of God, as being from you, Lord. And so would you use that message to encourage our hearts this morning, Lord? God, that we would see that there, there is a, a clear way to go about ministering the gospel to those around us in this life, Lord. God, that it does recognize your mercy to us. That it does entail suffering so that others might be done spiritual good. Lord, and that it does look to this eternal reward that is coming, God. Would you see to building each of these ideas under gospel ministry into our own lives, Lord, that we would see them as, as kind of anchors as we pursue faithfulness with the ministry that we have been given under the new covenant, Lord. We need your help in these things, Lord. We ask for that this morning, Lord. And we ask that you would increase even our vision of, of your power being able to work through our weakness, we entrust ourselves to you. God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.